0: association, 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 association. That was such uber ponage.
1: Hello fellow nerds from the studios of WBNS Radio in Columbus, Ohio. This is the Nerd Association podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Barnett.
2: And I'm your other host, Mark Finch. And here on the Nerd Association podcast, we like to remind you that just because our jobs are cool, it doesn't make us cool. And so joining us, we have a special uncool, cool guest with us today. Hopefully he doesn't mind me saying that Craig Calcaterra, you may have found him on Twitter. He covers a lot of baseball stuff, but many other things. He's a great follow on Twitter at Craig Calcaterra. He also writes the cup of coffee, a daily newsletter that brings you fully up to speed on what's happening in major league baseball before your first cup of coffee. That's his pitch, not mine. I really like his writing, so just so everybody knows. If you if you're looking for some baseball from a little bit different perspective, Craig Calcaterra is your guy. Now onto the podcast. What do you guys think of when I say 70s movies? Craig, after you.
0: I, I think of for me because I am really, really uncool. And by the way, no problem saying that at all because I'm a suburban dad. And so I am very uncool. Uh the first thing I think of is uh is slow burns. I, I think of I think of movies that, uh, you know, pre, pre-Star Wars kind of uh, character pieces, crime, and uh, stuff that my kids will look at and go, what the heck are you watching this for?
1: I know that it's never referred to as the golden age of Hollywood, but I would consider the 70s to be the golden age of filmmaking. I mean, you have some of the most innovative directors coming along and trying new things, and as you said, trying character studies and slow burn type movies and... Quite frankly, if I if I name favorite movies and start rattling them off, chances are they're probably from that decade or proximate to that decade where, the, you know, that those sorts of ideas were starting to take hold. Uh, now, Chops, I know that you are a movie buff, but you're you would admit that the 70s is not necessarily your um, your wheelhouse.
2: Well as I was growing up for I don't know what it was maybe it's because it's like when my parents were in college and stuff like that so they pushed these movies a lot more like 80s was a big decade for me that I experienced you know all the John Hughes movies things like that that I really experienced a lot more And 70s kind of fell through the cracks you know there's there's the the really famous ones that I I tried to see and like I've never actually sat down and watched The Godfather or The Godfather the, the whole trilogy. I've never like fully immersed myself in that. I really want to see Apocalypse Now, but I haven't done that. I have seen Taxi Driver, but I, yeah, there my f- film knowledge on the 70s isn't as vast as I would like it to be and as it is in other decades.
0: Yeah, I I think for me it started that way the same because I I was a you know, I was born in 1973, so I was growing up in with 80s movies and the John Hughes movies and things like that. Like you, like you mentioned, um, you know, I was into Star Wars and Indiana Jones and all that stuff. Like anybody in their 40s uh, probably was. Um, and then something just happened when I was in late high school, early college. There was a video store near me and had a bunch of weird movies on one wall, they didn't, it wasn't a blockbuster or anything, so they didn't do it by genre, they just did it by however the people behind the counter wanted to do it. And they had a wall that said, oddball 70s stuff. And now in hindsight, that's crazy, because it had all these classics on it, it had The Godfathers, and it had Chinatown, and it had, you know, the conversation and all those kind of movies. But I just... Liked the cover art. I like so. Oh, hey, look! There's that actor I like, but he's young. What's going on? Robert De Niro is young, and and Gene Hackman is young. What's going on? And so I just started watching them all, and and just really fell into it. And and the thing that you know, I now, if you read books about it, or if you are studied on film, which I am not, um, you know, it's it's a distinct era, the the new wave of Hollywood or, or the new Hollywood. It's sometimes called when all these people who came to movies when it became a in academic pursuit, began to make movies. Like They they consciously reacted to the French New Wave and the Italian New Wave and Golden Age of Hollywood and started doing their own thing, consciously aware that they were, or at least trying to make art, as opposed to just, hey, what's going to put butts in the seats in this giant musical? So that's it just really blew this whole world up for me in, in movies. And and they remain today my, my favorite era of movies. And I, I don't think you can call them a genre, but definitely that's my vibe. Well, I, I, I would agree with you that that it's definitely the first
1: time in a long time that most that more filmmakers than not are making concerted efforts to make not movies but cinema <laughs> as, yes, and, and, film. And, and exactly and viewing it sort of as an the, the art form i don't know i think we're back maybe at this moment in the sort of 40s and 50s mindset of just put butts in seats well in a in a world where butts in seats is a thing that can happen <laughs> but you get my point
0: the fact um, that you even said in a world is in, the, is in the, a world <laughs> yeah
1: um but uh, yeah you look at, at all these people who we think of as being legit movie stars like l- legends in film and this is when many of them were were coming up and cutting their teeth or were making a name for themselves and would go on you know in in the 80s and 90s in some cases to like become superstars but this is where they got their start
0: you mentioned the you know maybe it's the the 40s and the golden age and then now are, are all about the the box office and blockbusters and stuff. and I, I would argue that basically all of movie history except for probably the 70s was that sure and and whatever you would count for like indie film in the 90s you know and since. Um, but what happened in the 70s for for people not really super aware of these movies, Um, Hollywood was spent, man, in the late, mid to late sixties, they were spent, there were still some big, big movies, but the big ones tended to be these, these very lush, uh, musicals and, and epics and things like that. Those would do well, but like, they really didn't have any sort of a hold on what young people wanted to see. And when I say young people, I mean like the baby boomers who were coming into, into the age of the teens and twenties and they were lost and TV was killing them. And so the studios just started writing checks to young, long-haired, pot-smoking, sunglasses-wearing directors and, and writers and things, and saying, "Please go, go make me a movie that young people will come to see. Whatever it is, just do it." And they had all this kind of freedom, and uh, and they spent almost a decade doing that, you know, enjoying that kind of freedom and making all these crazy movies until, like everything else that starts good, it got bad, and and now it's back to <laughs> no, we're going to watch how much money we can make.
2: It sounds similar to now how like the streaming services treat it like Netflix. The joke is they'll green light anything, but they practically (laughs) will. They'll, they'll give anybody money, make a movie and go with it. Uh, Amazon will do it sort of the opposite way. We'll just find, like an indie movie that they think is really good and just buy the rights and then put it on their streaming platform. Hulu does a little bit of it too. And the weird reverse of it now, or maybe not even reverse, is that when those people do make like a successful indie movie, then they're handed the keys to an Avengers movie or something like that. And it's weird how studios just let that happen, that like the people can go out there and they're like, we're not going to finance your good movie. But when you do make one, then then we'll pay you now. Right. right.
1: Well, And you're right. We're in an era where these streaming services are having in the same way that in the 70s film studios were having to take risks to compete with television. Streaming services are having to take risks now to get people away from television. And again, in a pre-COVID society movie theaters, now it's like not only can you watch the most cutting edge stuff, but you can do it in the comfort of your own home Um, and you don't necessarily need the the you know $10 popcorn and and the what's that sticking to the bottom of my theater seat experience. <laughs> um so we have we have waxed poetic. Now is it is it time then that we dive into what some of our favorite 70s movies are? I think so. All right. That's the point. That's why we're here. I think that's why we're yeah. I think that's why we're here today. <laughs> Craig, would you like
0: to kick us off? Okay. Uh well, I'm going to start with what is I think my favorite movie of all time from any era. Um and it's it's a, a classic of the seventies and it's the conversation. Now I thought that is... was a safe one on my list. <laughs> oh no. That... <laughs> but let's talk no, about it I will say that's that's probably like the big well no, it's maybe the second biggest one on my list. But um so the conversation was Francis Ford Coppola. He he had, had a mega mega hit with The Godfather. And uh Coppola, you know, for people who didn't know what he was doing before The Godfather. He was a Hollywood dude. right. He was making musicals with Fred Astaire and stuff and not liking it very much, but he finally got the keys to do whatever he wanted. They were going to write him a blank check. He actually started his own studio with a couple of other directors and the idea was we're going to only make art. We're only going to make things that we want to make and that little project didn't really work out except for this movie the conversation came out in between godfather one which was amazing and godfather two which won best picture then he makes the conversation in between that's probably the best three movie run anyone's ever done and it's uh gene hackman as a uh, surveillance expert and he overhears uh, things that he uh, might not supposed to hear, and uh, and his whole idea is he wants to be detached from his work and, and only focus on the work, but he gets drawn in and into a to a mystery, and uh, it's not even that exciting kinetically. I mean, it is, <laughs> it's not as exciting as I described it kinetically. It's it is the slowest of slow burns. It is a, a movie where uh, paranoia, and uh, it was very appropriate because it was the Watergate era, uh, was was creeping into every scene and every frame. Uh, and for reasons that I could probably talk for a half hour, but you guys don't have the
2: time for, it is my favorite movie of all time. It sounds like a movie where, if it were made today, it would be just some like average Joe who gets a, a microchip somehow implanted him and he knows something he shouldn't know. And then it just turns into an average action movie.
1: So the the so bad, the, the the funny bad r- I was just going to say, go. the bad movie modern equivalent of it, I think, is Phone Booth, where you just sort of That's accidentally what? over like get, get involved in this thing that where you ha- only hear the other end and you kind
0: of fall into, you know, paranoia. I'm not sure. There've been various versions of it, right? Because there was a movie in the sixties called blow up where, uh, you know, someone has a photo and he thinks he sees something in the corner, something that could be a crime. and, And the guy keeps trying to, you know, figure out what it is. Then the conversation, he's doing it with audio and then Brian De Palma made a movie with John Travolta called blow out, which was the same general idea. So it's been done a few times. And, uh, and you mentioned a modern update, gene hackman and will smith were in the late 90s movie enemy of the state Mm -hmm. which was also a paranoid uh kind of uh what's the government doing or what are powers that be doing except it was a big 90s blockbuster with with shootouts and helicopter chases and all kinds of things and gene hackman plays a character who is a surveillance expert who is sort of out on his own that wasn't the same character from the conversation but it was definitely a conscious nod to his character in the conversation so what would happen if we turn this slow burn of a 1970s movie into a big 90s action thriller well that's and, go. State.
1: and And I want to say, too, about the conversation. So Walter Murch is this legend in film editing in Hollywood, and he edited, you know, the, all of the Godfathers and Apocalypse Now and American Graffiti, et cetera, et cetera. He's got three Academy Awards and he and he edited the conversation. It was one of the first movies where I felt like the the decisions on cuts were so important to the understanding of the film. Like, like the editing was almost a character. <laughs> um, oh, absolutely. And then the conversation to me is the, the a film that if you ever want to see what uh, like perfection in film editing is, that's it to me. Like, go watch that. So yeah, it's, I'm with it's you. It's so important
0: to it too because there, you know, this doesn't give anything away because it happens in the first minute of the movie, but, you know, there's this couple that he's overhearing and, and the line that the woman keeps repeating repeating is he'd kill us if he got the chance yeah or if he had the chance and as he's listening to the playbacks it changes very frequently from which word she emphasizes and and which word she emphasizes could totally change what she's talking about and and that's all a function of editing and 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 it's a movie about editing (laughs) like (laughs) him editing this this tape
1: and yeah and as you said interpreting it different ways every time and letting it sort of seep into his brain um yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a really cool meta thing that happens in
2: that film. <laughs> All right. Well, I will have to add that one to my list. I'll go next just to start things off. This one, I went back and watched after, I would say the first one I saw in this series was Prometheus, which I guess you can argue whether or not is like fully a part of the Alien series. But the, 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 the follow-up to Prometheus ended up being called Alien Covenant. So I think you can fully put it in there. It was Ridley Scott coming back. So Ridley Scott's original one, Alien, I I always really like that movie. I'm fascinated with the Xenomorph. I like, you know, just looking up things and uh Geiger and how he designed that and stuff like that. I think it's a, ter- a terrific movie monster. So Alien comes in at the top of my list as far as 70s movies go and again kind of a for a modern horror audience they probably wouldn't yeah latch onto it as much. It has that slow burn feel to it a little bit, but then it has it's interesting going off the the whole series is how until Ridley Scott came back for Prometheus and Alien Covenant it was there were all di- these different directors who are great directors uh, making these Alien movies so they all have a different feel and then this one the first one is very much of its era uh, but Sigourney Weaver's there for a lot of it. I, I agree.
1: Alien's one of my favorite sci-fi movies. It was on my sort of list, expecting for it to get
0: bumped off, um, <laughs> and it's, it's wonderful. You know what? Alien's a great example for this for this podcast, actually. If you if you don't know '70s movies very well, because most people know at least something from the Alien uh, series, whether it's yeah. you know the later ones or the earlier ones. Um, but if you know Alien. Uh, and you, you've seen the movies, but you haven't seen the first one or you haven't seen it for a long time, go back and watch it. And the difference in tone and the difference in cinematography and the difference in mood is the difference between, say, an 80s movie and a 90s movie and a 70s yeah. movie, right? It's it's the '70sization, even though it came first, uh, of that series. And it can kind of tell you how movies change from that decade to now. There aren't too many franchises that have a film in
1: so many different decades. <laughs> so you know yeah. there, you you have the opportunity to see how it progresses and as you said what gets gr- greenlit in in hollywood
2: especially one where the quality is decent you know we have the friday the 13th which have stretched over so many decades and same with like halloween and stuff like that but alien for the most part is pretty good quality if you throw out the alien versus predator movies i think the series holds a pretty high watermark compared to other things that have been stretched over just because they're a known property over many decades right
1: well, I'll go ahead and give you what my top film is. You were talking about sort of the Nixon and Watergate scandals impact on sort of filmmaking and pop culture in the 1970s. My f- my favorite film of all time and my favorite film from the 70s is All the President's Men, um, mm-hmm. which for those who aren't familiar, it stars Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, or rather Woodward and Bernstein in that order. Um it's about the reporters who broke open the Watergate scandal and basically how good, you know, gumshoe reporting can change the course of American history. <laughs> uh it's and it is it's a slow burn film. It's a it's definitely very procedural in the way that it handles this real news. And the thing that's shocking about it, you get so many movies that are uh you know, historical pick pieces or that want to talk about a time in history and this was one of the first where it ha- it was released two years after Nixon resigned, which is a quick turnaround if you think about like a Hollywood film getting greenlit and
0: filmed and released in that short of an amount of time. <laughs> Even shorter because the, the book had to come out first. Right. And so, you know, and that was, I guess, what late 74 early 75 probably so it was like a year and a half maybe that they had to do it
1: well yeah and the book of course is based on the reporting that was taking place during the time so it's very much a non-fiction piece they didn't have a whole lot to do in the edit but a point well taken it was a very quick turnaround and of course you also had the two reporters who sat down with these two actors and said this is how it happened and and you know getting their it was easy to get down their personality traits because they could go and talk to them in person in a way that in a lot of historical films, you don't always get that opportunity.
2: I have seen this one. Now it may be a bit of cheating because I was forced to watch it in a history class in high school, but I did watch it. I probably had to watch it in three parts because the, you know, the class period ended and it's a long film. Um, That's for sure. (laughs) But I, I really, I did enjoy this one. So that one was actually on my list as well. I think it's uh, I, I like movies like that. Like in recent times, we've had like spotlight, you know mm-hmm. those investigative journalist type movies i think yeah. those are really good and,
0: and they, they all compare to all the president's men i mean every movie mm-hmm. like that that comes out they are they owe it to all the president's men
1: yeah and like i said i became a reporter because of that film because it you're it, not alone
0: I, every, yeah. you know i know so many people in media that cite that and I think it's for good and for bad, right? Because who, who in their life is going to have that kind of story? (laughs) Oh, sure.
1: That's (laughs) ever. I mean, and, and, and journalism is viewed differently now than it was then. And we don't have to get into that. But, um, I just think the idea that like to get into a profession, because even, even on a local or a smaller level, the job you do in fact affects people's lives, like that's a pretty cool thing. Um, and i think all the presidents men is the the biggest example you know the largest grandest example of how that can happen but i think it does hit home this is not just writing for an unknown audience you could actually be changing people's lives so nerd
2: association the podcast that will change the world there you go yeah precisely i <laughs> heard it here first all right back to you craig
0: all right i'm going to go with uh the 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 private eye movie the long goodbye Hmm. This is a, a Robert Altman directed movie. Uh, it is basically it's Philip Marlowe, right? It's it's you guys probably or most, when I say you guys, people listening know Philip Marlowe movies as uh, Humphrey Bogart, The Big Sleep, uh, you know, old film noir, uh, Pulp Fiction from the '40s. Um, the Long Goodbye was Raymond Chandler, the author of The Big Sleep and all those, and the creator Philip Marlowe. It was his last novel, came out in the late '50s, and it was very much like. All the things that came before it—it it was your classic gumshoe, uh, you know, femme fatale kind of movie. Except Robert Altman put Elliot Gould in the in the Philip Marlowe role. Set it in 1970s Los Angeles. Uh, he is Marlowe is unchanged from from he how he might have looked in the 40s. He's he wears a fedora, he drives an old car, he's always wearing suits and ties. But everybody else is 1970s decadent Southern California. Um, So it's 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 this very stylized kind of uh, postmodern look at the private eye movie. And uh, it's certainly tongue in cheek in a lot of ways. I mean, it's got a real story to it. It's got it's got a mystery. It, It generally follows the book, although there are some big deviations. But the real takeaway from the movie is the differences in, between the early 1970s and the 1940s classic setting, and and how society has changed. And when you think about it, you know, a movie that came out in what 1972 or 73 or whenever The Long Goodbye came out, versus uh, The Big Sleep, that's less than 30 years. It'd be like if we made a period piece now that that was back in, uh, you know, 1990 or 1993 or something, we wouldn't think it's that different. There'd be some technology and some fashion differences, but the way the world was so different from the forties to the seventies is what the long goodbye is all about. And just how the culture had completely changed and how the code of the private eye and, and, and the hero and the villains had all changed. And so in one way, it's just fun. In another way, it's funny, but it's also pretty affecting and it's a pretty good commentary
2: on just uh, the way, uh, Uh, society shifted in a very short period of time. I think that one sounds interesting for the idea of, I like when movies, you know, and this happens with tons of movies, this isn't going to be unique to this, but when movies, the perspective of them changes so much by going another third, uh, I guess 50 years now from the seventies. But when you look at a movie that had a lot to say about a time previous before it, and now you can look at it now. And then now that movie, the current, time is the time before it and then you can also look back to that 40s noir stuff and i think that's an interesting aspect that movies when you go back and watch them are really cool yeah absolutely chops all right so i'm gonna go back to before american pie before john hughes before all that stuff there was little group called national lampoons and they made a movie called animal house. Yes. (laughs) About a group of guys in a fraternity and the shenanigans they get into in college. And then, you know, then it turns into, they have to, they have to get off double secret probation and save their fraternity and all this stuff. And it, it, I really like the movie with Justin Long called accepted. And I think that movie borrows a lot from animal house. It's nowhere near as good, but I just wanted to bring that up that I really like that movie. I think there are certain things from Animal House that are just perfect. Uh, uh, Belushi is great where I'm a zit and he just pops it. And the way the girls are just disgusted with him. I love that scene. And I don't think any joke has aged better from a movie that you can put out there without context than, Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? And you can still put that on Twitter and there's always (laughs) five idiots who go, you're so dumb. It was the Japanese. I think that's a perfect example of how national lampoons animal house is one of the best comedies of all time. And my favorite from the seventies. So you've picked two
0: perfect movies for, you know redefining a genre because alien was the same way it it completely changed you know space movies horror movies and 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 all that kind of thing and animal house absolutely set the blueprint for uh, arguably still to today what Mm -hmm. the you know rated r comedy is supposed to be about yeah so
1: um you daniel doesn't like comedy (laughs) i i I, that's not true but
0: i don't like animal house um (laughs) so I, i will say if you haven't seen animal house it 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 is problematic in about 57 well, ways don't that, take would, that could never happen. Don't ever take today. my
1: word for whether or not a comedy is good. I'll say that up yeah. front. I have no <laughs> Similar to like that. Revenge
2: of the Nerds in that way. Yeah.
0: I think well, th- Revenge of the Nerds is way worse, but I, I, I think you can't even show Revenge of the Nerds anymore without it being <laughs> like, oh my God, what happened? But Animal House definitely has a bunch of cringy things, but it still has the out loud laughs too. So
1: the my next film, uh you had a Robert Altman film, I have a Robert Altman film. The tagline for this movie was the damnedest thing you ever saw. Uh and it's 1975's Nashville. Uh and Nashville is uh it it, it reads as much as it was influenced by Nixon era America. It reads a little too close to home today because it's about it is a satirical music ensemble comedy drama. <laughs> and it is about uh groups putting a concert together for a populist political candidate who is hoping to be a Washington outsider to replace both the Republican and Democratic parties.
0: <laughs> and yeah, that, that hits a lot different now. Sure than does. It
1: <laughs> and when you talk about ensemble casts, it has twenty-four main characters and that's and it's a I think I want to say it has a runtime of almost four hours and so this is the Avengers of political dramas kind of but it's also with, a with musical as much accent and a comedy <laughs> and a satire and yeah um but the cast is like uh Ned Beatty uh Keith Carradine Geraldine Chaplin Shelley Duvall uh Jeff Goldblum like name name some sort not Lily Tomlin name an actor that you see in lots of things, but aren't necessarily considered like big
0: stars. And they were in this film in the seventies. So when I said at the beginning that seventies movies are things that like, if I showed them to my kids, they'd go, what the hell is that? Nashville is probably the quintessential one. I don't think I could get them through. I mean, I I have a hard time sitting through Nashville. I haven't seen it for a very long time, but um, you know, it's, it's, It's not super plot driven. You you certainly aren't following characters as things unfold. It is, it is just this sort of, I won't call it a mood piece because it's more than that, but it's just a big sprawling mess of sort of seventies, you know, malaise. And, uh, and it's not the kind of thing that's going to hold the young person's interest unless they're really, really into, Oh my God, I'm supposed to watch this movie and like it. Let me figure out why.
1: But you know what? It works. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it does. It, oh, not, it, that's not even a criticism. Yeah, no, I, I know you're not. I'm saying like for all the things that are just completely, you could, you would think they could never get this movie. You couldn't make this movie today. Again, what? Avengers, Avengers got a special ticket because it's like the end of an, a 22 movie saga by Disney. That's the only reason they could make a movie that was almost four hours long.
2: Uh, like now this movie is <laughs> like you were saying, it's that long. Would you suggest, as some people had with the Irishman, that like you could split it up into like your own miniseries or is this a oh, yeah. buckle I, in you've gotta watch the whole thing in one sit down?
1: I don't know because I think you'll f I think there are so many end like loose ends that kind of get tied up by the end of the film you would let me say this if you made your own miniseries of it you would need to be paying damn good attention yeah, to really yeah, understand really... everything that was going watch on watch it on like
2: consecutive nights yeah. <laughs> yeah take
1: notes kind of film
2: so <laughs> a thing
0: that a thing that happened a lot with 70s movies because I mean this was obviously the most extreme one but there were a lot of kind of long movies in the 70s and, and this doesn't happen anymore there was talk that they were going to maybe do it with endgame yeah was they had intermissions they actually had intermissions Didn't the movies... that
2: hateful eight have that but that was more of a style choice from Tarantino
0: I mean that was kind Consciously, him nodding at that even though it was a long movie but like papillon and Mm -hmm. maybe this and a bunch of other movies had intermissions and in the early 80s on hbo when they would show some movies from the 70s they kept the intermissions in there like they would have like (laughs) you know a freeze frame of steve mcqueen and a little counter saying four minutes and then some orchestral music playing or something and and so yeah definitely a different kind of thing
2: my mom loves telling the story of my dad supposedly tricking her into seeing Gettysburg in theater, and she says she says she left at the intermission because she was so she's like this movie's just awful. There's just killing and war, and she hated it. And then my dad was like, "Okay, well I'll see you at home." And he went back in after intermission and finished the movie. If you're gonna
0: trick a woman into seeing a movie, why are you picking Gettysburg? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. your one shot at deception, and you're gonna like <laughs> blow it on a big turgid Civil War drama. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah he probably pitched it as like there's gonna be love in it or something but uh, <laughs> no <laughs> all right craig i think you're up
0: all right um i am gonna go with uh and i just re-watched this last week so in fact this might have even been when when you contacted me to come on this podcast this is what was in my mind the taking of pelham one two three another um, great now, film they, they made a they made a uh an update of this with Denzel Washington in the, maybe in the nineties, early two thousands Travolta, Travolta, right?
1: Yeah, I think it was Travolta, yeah. Yeah, yeah but d- this don't, one's don't Gene Hackman. Watch, one. watch this one.
0: No, no, no. This Isn't is it? uh this is Walter Matthau. That's for <laughs> Yes, Walter Matthau, again, so no, no, he wasn't the other one. Anyway, Walter Matthau is, you know, the the transit cop in New York uh, in charge of the subway system and then Robert Shaw, who you probably know if you know him at all, he was Quint in Jaws, mm-hmm. um, if, if I'm foreshadowing someone picking Jaws, but uh, he he leads this group of guys, it's a heist movie, but they hijack a subway, which is weird and, and there are like 10 lines in the beginning of the movie of, who hijacks a subway? Because you can't take it anywhere. Um but they hijack a subway. There's a reason they hijack a subway. Um, and it all takes place in one day over the course of a couple hours, almost in real time. Uh, and uh, I guess I'll just leave it at that. The best thing about it, in addition to mathau being a kind of guy who would never, ever be cast as an action hero today, even though there's not a lot of action, um, he's funny. Uh, and the movie takes... It's a perfect slice of 1970s urban life in terms of if you know about how New York was in the, in the mid-70s, it was almost on the verge of bankruptcy. Crime was out of control. People were asking whether or not New York was just a, a failed city at that point. Um, and, and it just captures that moment. Anybody you know from New York who is old enough to have remembered the 70s always says, oh, yeah, that movie. That was the New York I remember. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. But uh <laughs> great movie a tight thriller even though it came uh, came out in the 70s a lot of movies don't age very well because of pacing and things this is still a a fast-paced sharp movie absolutely great crime
2: thriller on the concept of movies aging i feel like the 70s is perfect for getting more timeless movies in there because the 80s 90s and early 2000s now we can look back and see that like Clearly, like that's what I think of when I think I saw the Travolta taking a in 123. I've only seen it once, but I remember there being like a lot of like techno mumbo jumbo trying to throw that in there and like, oh, they're, they're using the computer to make the train go and all, whatever. And like, all that technology is dated. And that in the 80s, anytime you see somebody whip out a computer or a cell phone or whatever it might be, same with the 90s, it's like immediately like taken out. And I think the 70s was at a good time where like computer technology wasn't far enough along that you were going to make it like this hinging point for like, Oh, all the kids are using this piece of technology. We better put it in our movie. And so the, the stuff in there is pretty much universal as time goes on. And I think that lets the seventies movies age a lot better for sure.
1: Well, and by the nineties, almost all plot like movie plots could be solved by having
2: a cell phone. You know what I mean? (laughs) If there was a
1: tension in a movie, it probably could be solved by the possession of a cell
2: phone. And the 70s. And so now you horror didn't... movies have to have some sort of reason why phones don't work. Every right. single horror movie. Yeah, it's they have to be show,
1: They have to show you like they have to show a distinct scene of someone
0: going, "Oh my gosh, you don't have service anymore." Before. Exactly.
2: They...
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say my first impulse was, oh, in, in the 70s it had to be harder because you had to you had to have everything be character driven and plot driven and, and event driven. And I'm like, no, I think it's gotta be harder now because you gotta explain why your computer or your cell phone or whatever doesn't just solve the plot problem.
2: Right. Yeah. You know, you didn't
0: have <laughs> to do that then.
2: <laughs> yeah. My next one, this one's probably gonna be a surprise for you guys, but it was suggested by I've mentioned the red letter media guys on YouTube before and this one, it's an Italian giallo movie, mm-hmm. which is a, an Italian like kind of like slasher film that, that that they made. Suspiria, a very famous oh, movie. If Dario into, Argento, spectacular. Yes. If you're into horror movies, you probably have heard of Suspiria. It's up there on the rankings of some of the scariest movies of all time. It had a 2008 remake where I think Tilda Swinton played like three or four roles or something <laughs> yeah, like that's that. Yeah, right. Suspiria is about this uh, girl in Europe. She travels to a... Um, to a dance dance academy to like a boarding dance academy that she goes to and when she gets there Things aren't quite what they seem. There's a lot of freaky stuff going on and she tries to investigate it and she goes and it has the, what would now be a Skype scene, but she actually has to go to the uni- the local university and talk to somebody who's an expert on, uh, I don't know if it's the occult or whatever it might be. And she learns some, and then she keeps going and then it ends up with disastrous things, but I don't want to spoil it too much. It's a great movie. Very suspenseful. Can
1: I throw out at this point, y'all have had 50 years to watch these movies. I'm not restraining <laughs> anything for spoilers.
2: <laughs> okay. (laughs) well it turns out the people who spoilers for suspiria from 1977 it turns out the yeah they're witches they're running the school they're using it to i i guess like find sacrifices and things like that and it it gets real freaky at the end uh a note on italian Jallos, and i didn't know this going in nobody had explained this to me but i'm watching it and i'm like is there something wrong because i was streaming it and i'm like is there something wrong with the sink what's going on here because the the lips don't exactly match the word. And apparently this is a staple of Italian filmmaking. They'll bring actors from anywhere and just have people come in and just act and you just do it in your native tongue, whatever language you speak, you do. And then they dub it in whatever language they want it to be in for each version. And you just dub over the actors. And so that's why if you're watching it, you'll notice the words don't really match up with a lot of the actors Lips, But that's just how they did Italian movies.
1: Well, and also, if you're watching uh, the original Suspiria, you might think the color is off on your television or your, your computer monitor or whatever. But it, it, if you haven't seen it, the best way to describe it is if The Wizard of Oz was a horror film because they're filmed in Technicolor. <laughs> yeah. And so it's this like huge, vibrant, like blow out the screen kind of colors yeah, and the the reds are almost pink, like the blood is almost magenta because it's so red. It's it's go- it's gorgeous and horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it,
2: it's it's a good way of that now, but it kind of reminds me of like uh, movies nowadays where they just really turn up the saturation yeah. and they're just way too bright and terrible. So it's the good version of that. Yeah, the,
0: the blood thing is interesting. I, I haven't seen this one, but a lot of seventies crime movies, uh, early seventies, they started to change it later in the seventies, but the blood is always very fakey looking compared to what we're used to seeing in movies um, from the early 70s and part yeah. of it was because they were still worried about like the production code and things like that that didn't exist anymore but there was still a holdover about it has to look kind of not real and so you see these either very very bright red unrealistic color blood or this very very dark unrealistic color red blood and uh, I, I think like Steven Spielberg with Jaws or something was probably the one who just said screw it we're making realistic blood
2: Well, and I all- was reading something about this recently sorry to cut you off there Daniel yeah. But just on top of that that another thing that was like a holdover was like the the advent of color being like the main thing they're making movies in now and you used to not have to worry about the color of the blood it just had to look good as far as like the texture and everything so that was another reason I read that the blood in the 70s looked so weird because they hadn't quite developed the right color yet
0: yeah like in the 40s and 50s they used like chocolate sauce and stuff
1: and part three is kind of along those lines not only had they not figured it out they did it took them a while to realize that Bl- the color of blood doesn't film well like it doesn't translate well into film and so okay. the, even if it looks perfect in real life like you've made what you think is the perfect blood it doesn't look it never looks the same way on camera and it's like a special thing about red vit like red shiny liquids just don't film well <laughs> <All right. laughs> for whatever reason so there you go i i saw um i saw a uh if y'all are familiar with the modern rogue or not a youtube channel where they just like talk about this kind of stuff and they were like hey it's hard to make fake blood
2: here's why so anyway so if you see really realistic blood be skeptical of it probably blood that looks really bad be skeptical of that movie yeah it might be (laughs) real blood exactly
1: (laughs) well i'm gonna go out and say it before anyone else does because if someone's takes star wars a new hope from me i'm going to be upset (laughs) (laughs) listeners to this podcast will know um star wars a new hope Star Wars is my my favorite film franchise because I'm a big old nerd and uh, because I had all those visual dictionaries growing up. (laughs) Um, This is where it all started. And not only was this a big deal for, you know, one of the largest film and television franchises in history, George Lucas, for all he gets crapped upon for writing terrible dialogue in the prequels was an innovator like none other when it came to visual effects. And there's a reason that his company, Industrial Lights and Magic, basically had the monopoly on that visual effects in film for years and years and years. And it's because he was a genius that had this vision and brought in the exact right people to figure out how to make it happen. Um, And so not only was Star Wars, I think, important in the language of of storytelling and how epics are told into a modern audience and taking a, you know, classic tale and putting it in a science fantasy setting. But it also changed the way films were made. I mean, even things like star Wars doesn't have the credits at the beginning. Lucas um, was banned from the, not from the Academy, but for like um, the director's guild. Thank you from the director's guild because he wouldn't put the credits at the beginning of the movie there's and, and in fact that like the story of of how many of his films were made after that is the story of the fact that he just they wouldn't let him direct films in Hollywood
0: <laughs> for certain Yeah, studios. he had to yeah he had to like you know fundraise everything himself which was not hard when you when you have Star Wars under sure. your belt. but yeah he it was definitely a maverick and I, I think this is an important point because one thing a lot of people screw up when they're talking about 70s movies and the end of the the new Hollywood or that second Golden Age of Hollywood or whatever it is they usually will say, there were all these auteur-driven movies, uh, arty movies, and then George Lucas and Steven Spielberg came along and ruined it because they made these huge blockbusters that were popcorn favorites, and, and that was the end of that. And that's that's really misleading. It's, it's unfair. Yeah. But it's unfair because <laughs> Lucas. So Lucas's thing, he he was uh uh his mentor was Francis Ford Coppola. Right. They were they were very close. They they made movies together. Um. His his first big movie after he got out of film school is something called THX one one three eight, and uh, it like when you hear THX sound and stuff. I mean, it's named after that. Um, and one one three eight appears
1: in Star Wars constantly.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, she's in Cell Black one one three eight. It's a dystopian future movie, but it is it is and it's a sci fi thing to some extent. But it is is completely. Uh, in keeping with the 70s sort of aesthetic uh of that of that uh director driven driven thing and then after that his big thing that allowed him to make star wars was he had a huge hit with american graffiti mm-hmm. which which was itself another sort of quintessential 70s movie and some people slag on that because they're like oh that was when you know nostalgia took over but you know it's a different version of the last picture show right which is a you know the the end of our youths and the beginning of our adult kind of period piece um he was definitely of that of that world so was spielberg uh and uh you know so star wars in some ways yes and jaws ended uh the the 70s kind of a thing But it was a logical outgrowth from it more than people want to say it was.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so Star Wars. It's a series? I'll have to check that out. Yeah, they ended up renaming that first one, A New Hope. Um, I think
0: it's streaming some places.
1: All right. (laughs) Yeah, go to houseofmouse.com
0: and you can find it. All right, Craig? All right, I am going to go with one that... I don't think anyone, I, I've yet to meet people that aren't super film people that have ever seen this one. I know a lot of people have, but um, uh, it's called Fat City. And Fat City was directed by John Huston. John Huston <laughs> was, you know, a golden age of Hollywood director. He did, uh, you know, The Big Sleep, he did The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, he did uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, those classic movies. Um, and he was one of the few directors who, presented with the new sort of era of filmmaking fell into it perfectly and, and really did a great job with it. He, he, it it revived him in a lot of ways because he had been sort of not making some very good movies in the sixties and fat city came out in 1972. It's a gritty, gritty, gritty story of, you know, very low time boxers in Stockton, California, which is not exactly a glamorous location for <laughs> any movie then or now. Um, but it's 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 something that a lot of 70s movies do is let's take this slice of life or slice of low life or slice of working class life and, and just see these people existing in it. And it starts Stacy Keach as a as a boxer who is near the end of his his days of being able to make any money, but he's probably working for the mob and he's probably beating up people on the side in order to make some dough. And a very very young Jeff Bridges is sort of like the up and comer. Um, this classic, again, I keep using this term, but it's a great mood piece, a great character piece. Uh, if you if you don't know Stacy Keach as an actor, or maybe you remember him from some weird '80s television show or something like that, he's he's an absolute just amazing actor, especially in this movie. Uh, you just smell this movie when you're watching it: the sweaty <laughs> gym, the sweaty bars,
2: the the smoky rooms. This is just a great movie. Fat City. So Fat City on Smell Vision. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So I'm looking at this list of 70s movies, and you guys giving me more. So this list, it's multiplying. I'm losing control with all these titles <laughs> you're supplying. I better shape up because if you don't know what I'm talking about, by it's now, electrifying. Yeah. <laughs> i'm going with uh with grease for my next pick because i'm looking at these other films and there's some on here that i've seen that i liked i I saw kramer versus kramer that's another one like uh my teacher made me watch i've seen jaws i've seen taxi driver but i just have to be honest with myself i really like grease even though my fiance j-lo claims to like grease two more which is just a ridiculous opinion the first grease Grease
0: two is underrated
2: it's it is good it is underrated but it's not as good as the first grease grease is great i love it i i I still sing the songs to myself or out loud whenever i want um and you can incorporate it into things like i just did there john travolta is great in it um another movie that like doesn't have too much of it but has some of those problematic things that's what you find with these like school kid movies is they kind of don't age as as well but Grease at least has the like popcorn songs that you can get through with so it's Grease, easier for
0: pick. it's easier for this though because the school age actors are all like 40 that's I think I literally think Soccer Channing who who uh played Rizzo or whatever I I, I think yeah, she was she's... probably like 37 or something when they made this movie
2: and then Kanicki doesn't look young at all. No, no.
0: Yeah, like, yeah he's a hard, show, he's a real hard.
2: <laughs> like, yeah, in, if you ever see 19.
0: the show Taxi, um yeah. Jeff Conway is the actor who plays Kanicki, who by the way, Jeff Conway played uh the Danny character when it was on Broadway and he had yeah, so to Kanicki for
2: the movie. Stocker no, Channing. Can- <laughs> Stocker Channing Rizzo was 33. John Travolta was 23. Jeff Conaway, Kanicki was 26 and Olivia Newton. John was 29 turned 29 during the filming. Yeah, that's yeah. all right.
1: <laughs> so, um, my next pick, which you said fat city is one of those that you rarely hear people mention it unless it's you talking to somebody who's really a film nerd. That's how I feel about this pick, which is three days of the condor.
0: Oh, yeah. Three
1: days of the condor is a Robert Redford film. It's like, and Faye Dunaway. It's like a spy thriller. And it's about this, uh, this kind of nerdy um in- intelligence like cia intelligence person that, that kind of transmits looks at all transmissions from different countries and tries to see if there's hidden codes in them and everyone in his pre like his uh, precinct or his house his safe house is murdered while he's out picking up a pastrami sandwich and so he has to go on the run and go through all these back channels to to get safe you know calling all these strange numbers and using all these codes and talking to his higher ups. And it turns out that spoiler alert, that his higher ups are in on this conspiracy of this to like rig oil prices, essentially. And so the hit was a job from the inside. And now he's alerted the people who are going to try to kill him too, that as to where he is, et cetera. And by the end, by the way, great appearance from Max von Schutau, who is uh, you know the priest from the Exorcist and who uh, appears in the new Star Wars films one for like three seconds. Um, who is a, who is an actor who needs to be in more things? He's passed away now, but had his, you, his,
0: his best movie was Strange Brew with the McKenzie yeah. brothers
1: he's so, He he perfectly <laughs> plays this like probably former Nazi hitman that has been brought in from the cold by the American government, who just like shows up and cleans up and then meets. Robert Redford's character and it's like you know actually I was you my government put me out on in the cold and like I can tell you how to live this life and Robert Redford's like no man I'm done anyway it's great it's a great film and Faye Dunaway is spectacular and she's in lots of great things from the 70s
0: but this is an underrated There's so many movies so many movies from the 70s that sort of don't fit the plot necessarily but have the same sort of vibe and it's it's the paranoid thriller Ah, uh, dark government forces. Things aren't as they seem. Kind of movie, which was perfect for the Watergate era, right? But also, it was, but uh,
1: also, it, in fact, was really what was happening. Like the yes, reason these movies yes. were popular is because they were not just based on the paranoia of the time. It's only paranoia if you're wrong. You know right. what I mean? Like right. you're only paranoid if 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 you're if you like don't have a reason. <laughs> and in this case, but, but, it like was, the golden. It was that there was a corrupt government doing things
0: kind of out in the open that were corrupt.
1: Hmm. Wonder what that sounds like. In the golden
0: age... All, all that kind of stuff was put aside the whole point of all these movies are we want to make people feel good and if right. there was an ambiguous ending someone from the studio would say we need to put a happy ending on right. it and power was seen as virtuous business was seen as virtuous hometowns and small towns were seen as virtuous and in the 70s they completely blew that out of the water now movies in other countries were doing this for years in France and Italy and Sweden and, and even in Japan they were they were doing this for years but this was new in America in the 70s right. and you have movies like, like Three Days of the Condor and you have movies like The Parallax View Mm-hmm. uh with warren beatty and, and you had uh a manchurian candidate remake and uh, just a bunch of other things um there are so many of these things aren't as they seem in the government and the and the dark forces are evil and and people were eating that up because it was real
1: right so there you go three days of the condor all right i will say a lot of our movies are are movies that translate really well into this moment in history.
0: So go
2: watch yeah, them. <laughs>
0: we should be having movies like this now. But... We will. And we probably will be.
2: Yeah. Well, the problem is coronavirus is going to like obsess movie makers. Only I think, on the, the Hallmark next, like, channel, man. Oh, I'll I take
0: it back. Wait, I'll take it back. We do have one movie kind of like this in a light way, and it's you know every movie now is a superhero movie, obviously, and has been for like a decade. Yeah. But Captain America: Winter Soldier is like a yeah. '70s movie, and it does have Robert Redford, whose casting was deliberate, I think, because because he it, was in so many of those films. <laughs> yeah, but it, it certainly is of if, if you have to take a modern movie that at least tries to tap into that '70s thriller paranoia kind of thing, it's uh, it's
2: Captain America: Winter Soldier for sure. And I bet if you, you know, surveyed a bunch of Marvel fans, they would find that one their most boring pick.
0: Yeah, they're like, "What's going on? What's going to happen?" It's like, "Oh, are you kidding me? This is great! It's a '70s movie guy. (laughs) That's like probably my second or third favorite Marvel movie."
2: Yeah. All right. Well, what's your yeah? What's your fifth favorite seventies movie? Here's a question:
1: Are we to the point now where we should be giving honorable mentions to things, or do we want to save that for the end? Because I have a feeling we're going to have some movies left over at the end that at least need to be talked about for a sentence or two. (laughs)
0: I've I've got one, and I actually was holding it off. It might be higher on my list, and I was going to give one of you guys the chance to do it, but um, because it's a it's kind of a big one of the of the decade. But I'm just going to throw it out there, so I don't care. Go. chinatown thank you (laughs) i'm glad somebody Uh, said it (laughs) yeah you got it you can't talk about the 70s without chinatown you can't talk about it without jack nicholson who i have i think in three other movies on my like i might call it out list jack nicholson was the quintessential 70s star um and and so i mentioned the long goodbye earlier which was this sort of deconstruction uh, of the private eye movie uh, sort of a meta thing chinatown is also a deconstruction it's kind of what I think began neo-noir, which is what we still have, but it plays it very straight. It's a period piece. It takes place in the thirties. Um, it's not winking at the camera at all. It's, 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 you know, a straightforward plot, a straightforward private eye, but it certainly has that seventies thing we were just talking about as far as, you know, dark forces, uh, business and power that we can't possibly understand that control far more than, than we understand. And, and this movie begins with just, an infidelity case. He's he's a private eye who makes his money by by taking photos of men cheating on their wives, and it starts out that way, and it turns out to be this big sprawling conspiracy. Um, very well done, obviously, of the 70s in terms of its. Uh, I, I know we're not doing spoilers, but people haven't seen these all the time, so I, I won't give it away. But uh, you know, it's it definitely ends on a shall we say ambiguous and unsettling <laughs> note in certain ways um, that would never have happened in a, in a golden age of Hollywood private eye movie. Um, but it's, it's you know, the word sumptuous comes to mind because it looks so perfect. Yeah, uh, They definitely put money into this movie. Uh, I just read a book about the, a whole book that was about nothing but the making of this movie yeah. <laughs> uh, that came out earlier this year. Uh, and I can't get enough of it. I'm not going to mention the director's
2: name because he's a piece of crap. But other than that, it's a perfect movie. <laughs> All right, my last one. I've talked about this movie on the podcast before, but I can't, in all good conscience, l- leave it leave it off for me. Dawn of the Dead, 1978, <laughs> George A. Romero. Oh, I, I, man, yes. I have, you know, no pun intended, beating this one to death on this podcast. I love this movie. It's a shame that the rights stuff is so, like, up in the air between uh, Romero and his original partner or whatever it is. And I, I think these movies are, like, called, like, this one is called Zombie in italy or something i don't know there's something weird with all that but you it's hard to find on dvd i have like a sort of bootleg copy that like is sort of official that i have on dvd and that's like the only place i could find it and it came from somewhere overseas but if you get a chance get your hands on the 1978 version of dawn and the dawn of the dead they hold up in, in the in the mall they take care of all the zombies they clear them out they they create their own little paradise in the mall and then it all Falls apart. I think, in my opinion, it's the best zombie movie there is. George A. Romero, really, those first three hit it out of the park with the zombie movie genre, and he created what we all see as the modern zombie. This one does have the problem with the blood in the 70s, but that's okay. It There's still some humor to this, too. It's not just all dour and in the dumps. And it's just, I think it's a really great movie. Ken Forey uh, leads the way. And I think it, I, I would totally recommend Dawn of the Dead to anybody.
0: Well, like any, I get asked a lot about sports movies because I'm a baseball writer. And, and what I tell people is the, the only really good sports movies are, are movies that just use sports as a, an excuse to tell a story about people. And I think with Dawn of the Dead, yeah, it's a zombie movie, but it's, it's a, I mean, it's always cited as this. It's a, it's a, it's a social satire and it's a comment on consumerism Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the state of America and everything like that just happens to be a zombie movie. They could have done the same thing with a teen movie. They could have done the same thing with a lot of things, but of course it's George Romero. So he's going to use zombies, which of course his first one, Night of the Living Dead was the same kind of a deal. Um, and that's what makes it so good. I mean, you could throw a zillion zombies or ghosts or monsters or whatever on a screen and, it, and it'll bore me to tears. Well, uh, but
2: Dawn of the Dead, it's telling you something. That's the thing about the Dawn of the Dead remake. That's a Zack Snyder film. And I actually like that movie. It's fine, but it's like an action movie. It's like, it's all about these people with guns and all this stuff and just sh- shooting zombies <laughs> and figuring out any way they can to just get through the, the, the mass crowd of it. And like, there really isn't even... They, I think they they go back to it a little bit as mostly just homages to the first one and talk about like why the zombies are coming there and stuff. But like there just isn't that similar commentary, even though they're still holed up in a in a mall. It's just all about shooting zombies. Yeah.
1: Now listen, we're all trying to be really cool with our picks, right? And that's okay because we're like <laughs> we're like film <laughs> I mean, I don't nerds. Know, I picked
2: Greece. That's pretty, I I mean,
1: that's, that, you know, that's coming Thanks, Dad. But we can't, we can't in good conscience talk about the 70s and film and the like revolution of film in the 70s without talking about The Godfather. So I'll be the one to, to, to beat the dead horse. Uh, (laughs) That pun was intended. Thank you. And, and talk about The Godfather, which is maybe the most influential film ever made. And maybe one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, it, you know, as we talked about Francis Ford Coppola, this is his, probably his masterpiece. The cast is every actor you've ever cared about for the, like the 30 years after this. <laughs> Marlon Brando was, was you know, coming back to do something cool, maybe for the last time. Um, Al Pacino, James Caan, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton uh you know in the in the godfather part two which is also great and deserves to be watched uh you have robert de niro and isn't harrison ford in this one because isn't he like buddies with francis ford Uh, or his cousin or something
0: no he well he was in uh he he was actually his carpenter for a while he was in apocalypse now but he he didn't make
2: it in this one anyway is nicholas cage in the second one or the third one
0: uh, he didn't make him in...
2: in oh, no, of, you're but, right. He's in a different... But he col- is a Coppola, Coppola. That's very good. Yeah. He's in
0: He's in. Peggy Sue Got Married, which is also yeah, there a Coppola you go. movie. Anyway, it, it's a spectacular film.
1: And for people who... There's a lot... I, I don't like meeting people who, when I say I haven't seen a movie, they go, Oh, man, what? You haven't... Blah. The Godfather is the one film that deserves the hype. In that list yeah. of things that people are like, Oh, my God, you need to go see The Godfather right now. Like no, actually, you probably do need to go see The Godfather right now. And if you have the time and the patience, you need to find The Godfather 1, Godfather 2 supercut because it really is great to see it done that way.
0: Yeah, and and you can, and a lot of people say this, if you love Godfather 1 and 2, you could see Godfather 3 that came out in 1990, but you don't have to. No, you Um, don't need to. (laughs) But the thing with The Godfather, in, in some ways, it's not like a lot of these 70s movies in that it's not of subversive, well, it's subversive in its own way. And that it, it, you know, it, it was taken at the time as negatively, you know, as a negative thing. It, it was seen as glamorizing the mob. Um, but as, as Coppola said at the time and has said ever since, yeah, he gets that. But the whole idea is he's not telling a mob story. It's obviously a mob story, but he's, he's telling a family story. And he's telling a story of the history of America. And, and that's what separates it from a lot of other gangster movies that followed it or tried to imitate it is yes you have all of the things you know you have the hit and you have the family and you have the hothead and you have the young uh, guy who's going to take over the family and, and all that kind of intrigue and and everything that you've ever seen in a mobster movie but it really is a, a grand arc of a family's interaction and America from yeah. you know the 40s or if you go back to Godfather 2 it goes back to the turn of the century all the way you know through the 50s into the 60s and uh, that's what makes it work so well in addition to just how great it looks and how great all the actors are and everything.
1: Well and also it's only glamorizing the mafia if you're not paying attention because the point yes. <laughs> the point of the film is that by the end Sonny is the villain like <laughs> the point is that him buying into this lifestyle is the thing that makes or michael him... yeah. sorry michael yeah yeah sorry that's the thing that
0: makes him the the bad guy in this film is that he right yeah he they, embraces they, the they... lifestyle yeah, because he, he's the young guy who is gonna be out of the family and then he gets brought drawn into it and, and your acts are what corrupt you and, and you know even the guy who at the beginning of the the first movie is is sort of the innocent and the one with principles and the one who's gonna do something different, he he's drawn into it just as much as everybody else. And if anything, he, he's worse. Yeah. Oh and-
1: exactly. <laughs> because he has because he has this virtuous idea about himself that he that he was allowed to have from the time before. That's
0: another thing about you know any whether it's a book or whether it's a TV show or a movie or anything like that, people get villains wrong more often than they than they don't. And wh- where you get a villain wrong is when you make him a mustache twirling guy who knows he's a villain. The, all the best villains are like in real life; they think they're the hero. Right. And, you know, Michael Corleone's whole arc is he's saving his family. He is trying to to do the things to save his family and protect his family. But no, he's doing horrible, awful things in the name of that. And he's deluding himself. And, and you know, Thanos is a great villain because he thinks he's saving the universe. It's right. the same thing. And, uh, and that's what just makes it so compelling.
2: Yeah, I always say that about Thanos is like, his his i his ability to identify a problem isn't like the the problem <laughs> isn't the issue with him he he has it's identified execution. a yeah, it's, it's his solution yeah it's a solution for that that's not good but like the the problem is there that makes sense but maybe if you have ultimate power by getting all these infinity stones come up with a different solution but what I, we're not talking about Thanos right now question killmonger, about, killmonger too okay <laughs> question about um got the godfather movies yeah. Are they better than Goodfellas? Because that's my favorite mob movie.
1: Uh yes, and I will say that um, Goodfellas is great in its own right. But it is about they're better films than that in a different way. And I would say Goodfellas, not again. If you're paying t- attention, you don't probably end up feeling this way. But Goodfellas certainly glow glory or um glorifies thank you glorifies the mafia life more than than the godfather yeah. does <laughs> so,
0: so the difference i think what i try to tell people when they ask me that is uh who's the paul servino character in goodfellas is that paulie yeah no, wait. yeah okay so take paulie and you put him in the godfather and he's like the lowest level guy they show in the godfather for the most part he's like clemenza in the godfather yeah. and they show everything above him and goodfellas is everything below on the street level i mean it's that's a little bit oversimplification but they're talking about different parts
1: as you pointed out too, the godfather is is a an american story told through the lens of of a crime family whereas goodfellas is is wholly throughout its person a mafia movie like yes there's nothing about it that isn't a like a classic gangster film so it's a great film but no i would say it's not as good as the godfather
0: (laughs) people (laughs) who are super into the sopranos and 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 i know that's a great show I, i never really watched it whatever uh it's not because i didn't like it i just whatever i never got into it but people who are super into the sopranos um are gonna like goodfellas better probably um but the godfather is a a richer bigger story that may not be as realistic um but you don't want the realism you want a story and uh, it does better
2: you guys make a good point like it uh, i haven't fully like i said or at the beginning i haven't fully sat down and ever just like immersed myself in the godfather movies but it sounds like it's more like a story that yeah this is the framework they're using but it's a it's a universal story that they could tell different ways whereas like goodfellas and the sopranos that's straight up just a story about the mafia. Yeah, you could tell The Godfather in a political
0: context. You'd have to change things or whatever. And when, when yeah. Coppola was rewriting it, because this was a novel, it was a it was a best selling novel by Mario Puzo, and it actually wasn't near nearly as rich. It was a it was a potboiler. It was it was took place in modern times too, not back. It wasn't a period piece. Um, and when Coppola was rewriting it uh, to make it into a into a movie he was thinking in terms of like Roman emperor drama, yeah. right? He's, he's thinking in terms of, uh, of that level of, of heirs and, and, and emperors and fathers and things like that. And it's definitely trying to challenge that uh, channel, that kind of thing, as opposed to just talking about crime stuff. Coppola doesn't seem all that interested in crime, to be honest, even though he portrays it very well.
1: All right. Honorable mention time. And you can only say one and one half sentences about each film okay because we're to keep to keep things from going out of control so i'll start uh dog day afternoon and then here's the tagline for that movie which says it perfectly the robbery should have taken 10 minutes four hours later the bank was like a circus sideshow eight hours later it was the hottest thing on live television 12 hours later it was history and it's all true nice that's a good (laughs) oh and in parentheses it was written by my college uh writing teacher pf kluga so there you go,
0: <laughs> and, well, and right. the and the guy who got an Oscar for it, Chris Sarandon, who plays Al Pacino's uh, uh, boyfriend girlfriend, depending on where he falls on the yep. gender line during that movie, uh, w- was the most famous graduate from my high school in Beckley, West Virginia. Cool, so there you go.
2: Craig Chops. Uh, I'll throw one out there: Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh wow, that's it's, a left field. It's yeah, colorful. It's got some crazy they throw in that that boat scene that's insane gene wilder (laughs) does a great job and it's also a good move it's also a good book so like if you have children you could have them read the book and show them this one don't waste your time with the johnny depp one it's more colorful and all that and like shinier but the first one willy wonka and the chocolate factory much better film
0: nice nice and and realistic blood there no no
2: Um, (laughs) but yeah that that chocolate river is actually blood
0: (laughs) (laughs) i I will throw out five easy pieces another jack nicholson movie uh blue collar worker uh who has more depths to him than he wants people to believe uh goes on a road trip to reconnect with his well-to-do family and finds himself lost in an america in post-60s malaise cool i'm gonna give my last
1: three and i'm just gonna say them Jaws, okay. yep. Marathon Man, which should make you scared of the dentist, and The Tenant, uh, which is by that director we're not talking about because he's a garbage human. But imagine <laughs> moving into a new apartment and turning into the person that used to live there. And it's a thriller horror movie. It's great.
2: Nice. Anyone I else? Throw out yeah. the, I want to throw out The Warriors. Craig mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. Movies that like take you back to where New York was. And I'm not sure exactly how realistic it is you know there's not just these roving costumed, gangs yeah these costumed <laughs> roving gangs but like there is when they're on the subway and running through the streets all night in that movie i think that one's a cool snapshot of the new york that most people will never see
0: uh, and i'll just throw out two titles uh california split which is a gambling degenerate gamblers movie uh but it's very good with elliot gould and then uh, blue collar Richard Pryor of all people, but he's playing in a drama and Harvey Keitel as Detroit auto workers fighting the man and fighting the system. But when one becomes the man, what happens? Dun, dun, dun.
2: (laughs) Thanks for listening guys. That was our review of our favorite seventies movie. Thanks to Craig Calcaterra for coming on. Once again, cup of coffee, a daily newsletter that brings you fully up to speed on what's happening in major league baseball before your first cup of coffee. You can follow him on Twitter at Craig Calcaterra. For Daniel, I would like to say thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to be a nerd like Craig was, you can always reach out to us and give us a topic you want to talk about. We can bring you on. It's real easy, and we'll just zoom right in, just like with anybody right now. You can find us on Twitter, at uh, NerdAssoc. That's N-E-R-D underscore A-S-S-O-C. You can also email us, uh, NerdAssoc at gmail.com. Check out some of these 70s movies. As we said, it's a really good decade for film, and I think you'll enjoy them, especially if you like what we had to say about them. Thanks for listening.